A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello listeners, welcome to a new episode of A Deeper Look podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360, and today I'm joined by one of my FHI 360 colleagues and a longtime humanitarian, Greg Beck who is the Director of Crisis Response and Integrated Development here at FHI 360. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to be here with you and your listeners. Greg, as you and our returning listeners know, the podcast theme for this year is Humanitarian Crises and Emergency Response. And I thought you'd be a perfect guest to join the podcast because of the work you've been doing on behalf of FHI 360 to respond to humanitarian crises in northern Nigeria and more recently in Yemen. Today I'd like to focus on the work in Yemen. Yemen has been described as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today. And so I think it's fitting for us to take a deeper look into the nuts and bolts of emergency response. You've been to Yemen twice uh, this year. You're in a good position to share your perspective on both uh, the startup of operations, how to identify where an international organization can make a productive contribution, and then some of the challenges that are faced. Before we get into those questions, just a quick reminder to our listeners. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode, so add your comments and questions and leave a review of the podcast. Now let me tell you all a little bit about Greg Beck, my colleague. Uh, As I mentioned, he leads FHI 360's crisis response work aimed at generating evidence and fostering global learning on integrated development solutions. So one of the things that Greg has championed is taking integrated approaches and taking the methodologies around integrated development and incorporating those into humanitarian response. And Greg, I'll ask you to say a word about that. He has worked for over 20 years providing strategic leadership, particularly on issues of humanitarian crisis. Greg's worked in Africa, the Caucasus, in Asia, and in the Balkans, where he's led emergency responses. I think we first met when you were the Deputy Assistant Administrator at USAID. So you combine both the perspective of somebody who is a practitioner on the ground as well as a policymaker who's doing the strategic planning and directing operations from the headquarters level. You've worked with a variety of organizations that focus on humanitarian response, including the International Rescue Committee, Global Communities, and USAID's Office of Transition Initiatives, as well as the Peace Corps. Greg, you've got vast experience in the world of emergency response. Why don't you tell us about your recent experience in Yemen? Sure, I'd be happy to, Patrick. So just as a way of background, as the escalating humanitarian crisis enters its fourth year in Yemen, widespread conflict, rapid deterioration of the economic structure, insecurity, and rapid collapse of essential public services and uh, food insecurity are really weighing heavily on the population of Yemen. The population is roughly 27 million 
give or take a million or so. Uh, currently, 22 million are in need of humanitarian assistance. So almost the entire population. Exactly. Of the very, very close to that. 11 million of those are in acute need, and 8 million people are on the brink of starvation. So those people, 8 million, don't know where the next meal is going to come. And what does acute need mean? So acute need means that they are on the edge of starvation uh, when it comes to hunger. They are without the nutrients, without the access to clean water. They are in immediate danger of, frankly, death uh, if they do not receive assistance. And is food security the major criteria for determining acute need? I mean, what about access to public health services or to education services? Traditionally, we look at access to water and sanitation and health care, primary health care first, and then secondary health care, and then food security. So those are really the three indicators of acute needs that are mm-hmm. measured by the international community. Okay. So almost the entire population of Yemen is caught up in this humanitarian crisis. That's what makes it the largest crisis Uh, in the world today, and 8 million people are on the brink of starvation. That's correct. And this is, just to to remind your listeners, this is a man-made disaster. This is not from uh, natural disaster. This is man-made. And in fact, all the combatants that are involved in the conflict in Yemen have essentially weaponized food, weaponized the economy. Uh, Or they're using starvation as a... As a tool. As a tool. That's correct. And that goes for all the combatants uh, in in the conflict in Yemen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So what's the international community's response? And then what have you been doing there? Sure, sure. So the international community has been involved in Yemen for a very long time. Uh, Conflict is not new to Yemen. Uh, It's just been accelerated since the, the Houthis captured Sana'a, the capital. And the Houthis are... So the Houthis are, uh, are the Zaidi branch of the Shia Islam. They make up probably 30% of the population. So the international community currently is serving 7 million people each month and providing uh, health care, providing uh, water and sanitation services, food deliveries, cash assistance, and uh, protection. Currently, there are 3 million people who have been displaced by the conflict. Um, most of those have flowed from the north into the south. Uh, in addition to that, in the north of in Saudi Arabia, 3 million people have been kicked out over the last six months uh, and have been repatriated back to Yemen. So just to add to the... To the and are they in the north? They're in the north, but they're also coming over in, in the far eastern area of Yemen and into Mukalla. Uh, which has been previously somewhat inaccessible by the humanitarian community, though there's a recent push to begin building out some humanitarian structure in that area. But it is not the hardest hit in Mukalla. So really, when you're looking at the hardest hit uh, areas of of Yemen, if you look at the provinces of Taiz, uh, which is south of Sana'a, you look at Hodaida, and you look at uh, uh, Ib, those are really where the conflict is taking place, where the displacement is taking place, and where the most vulnerable people are, are also located. So most of the 8 million people who are on the brink of starvation would be in, in those three provinces? In Aden, Taiz, and Hodaida, those are really the hardest hit when it comes to food insecurity. But if you look at insecurity uh, and safety of individuals, you probably would say that Sana'a and the North are the most vulnerable. You have a coalition that was built after the Houthis took over Sana'a. It's the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Sudan, mostly Sunni countries that have joined this coalition. Mostly in the south has been uh, boots on the ground by the UAE, 
Uh, and the Saudis have done the air campaign. And so there are a number of airstrikes that are taking place in Sana'a and the surrounding areas that are indiscriminately killing the civilians, that are targeting healthcare centers, they're targeting government buildings and schools, and oftentimes they're going into the neighborhoods and, again, adversely affecting a tremendous number of people. So you've mentioned uh, some of the parties to the conflict. I know there are other parties to the conflict as well, that there are different clans that are contesting territory, and that particularly in the southeast, Mm -hmm. you have al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, so another major force. And the Houthis are widely seen as being supported by Iran. That's correct. So you have a situation where there's uh, shifting loyalties down to the clan level that creates a confused mosaic of conflict across the country. How does an organization that is delivering humanitarian assistance operate in that kind of situation? That's a great question, Patrick. It, it is a really complex environment. In fact, it's probably uh, recognized as one of the most dangerous and complex operating environments for humanitarian organizations currently in the world. There are, uh, uh, as you cited, a, a mix, a complex mix of, of combatants. And so we have this proxy war that's going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and that's created the coalition. You also have a number of tribal groups, and they're oftentimes fighting long-time blood feuds, they perhaps around a water point. In mm-hmm. fact, it's estimated that probably 4,000 people a year die in battles over access to water. And so they have a, a variety of conflicts going on. As you mentioned, Al-Qaeda and ISIS have come in in a big presence. So for a humanitarian operation to be successful, one needs to first of all understand how to work in that difficult environment. So you need to be able to dialogue uh, and understand sort of the equities of those various actors. And so, first of all, starting with the government. And the government is very split right now. Uh, you have uh, the Houthi government up in the north. And then and, and they're in Sana'a, correct? They're based in Sana'a, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And then you have the internationally recognized government, that uh, President uh, Mansour Hadi, who's actually in Saudi Arabia, is not even located anymore in, in, in Yemen. So he's in exile. He essentially has a government in exile. He has some vice ministers that are in their capital of Aden. Our point of contact in the government is the Ministry of, of International Cooperation and Planning and the Ministry of Health. So we start there and we begin developing a dialogue. We understand what their plans are. We're looking for the needs and the gaps. We start at that point. We then have a lot of dialogue with the UN, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, UNFPA, and uh, OCHA. There's a cluster system in humanitarian environments, and so these are sectorally based, and so you have a wash cluster, a protection cluster, or a health cluster, and a logistics cluster. So those are those four main clusters. We engage with them to understand what is a strategy. They do a lot of gathering of assessments, so we understand, again, where the needs are, the immediate needs are, and we understand where the locations are. And then we also need to engage with the combatants, in fact. And so we've had conversations with both the Presidential Guards, with the Emiratis, with the Saudis, uh, with militia groups. 
so that we can be able to have access to the locations where we're beginning to work. How do you reach out to those commanders of those groups, particularly the militia groups? Right. Well, interestingly enough, it's been through our staff. So we've utilized their connections to be able to have face-to-face conversations with the generals to let them, first of all, know what we're doing, what are our intentions, how is it that we work in country, which is, again, a great deal of collaboration and trying to align with the ministries that we're working with. And where we've identified a great area of need is in far western government of Taiz, specifically in the towns of Almoca and Dubab. Those have been inaccessible to the humanitarian actors until just recently. And the FHI 360 is one of the first humanitarian actors to gain access to those areas. We just had a, uh, another assessment there by two of our international staff. And do they travel by road or do they travel by air? They travel by road. There's no air travel within intra-country travel. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is about a six-hour car ride that goes along the coastal route into that far western region. The reason why we picked those two areas is because they are the greatest areas of need. The health facilities over the last couple of years have been occupied and citizens have not been able to access primary health care or secondary health care. Now, because of the battle that's going on in the north in Hodaida and the port, most of those combatants have moved out of that area, have gone north, and now have allowed us to get access to those, to those locations. Mm-hmm. And then what kind of activities are you doing there? We are developing very similar to our program in northeast Nigeria, in, in Borno State, an integrated program uh, that includes primary health care, nutrition, and water and sanitation. Because, again, according to the need assessments, those are really the the primary areas of need for the citizens and uh, not only for locals, but also for internally displaced persons. Now, you've been a champion in the development community for integrated approaches to addressing human development needs. Is that something that you're bringing from your humanitarian response background? Is that pretty much how humanitarian organizations operate, or is is that something that you and, by extension, FHI 360 is, is introducing? There's always a great frustration of mine as a longtime humanitarian actor that we weren't more integrated in the way that we delivered our services to locals and IDPs and refugees. There's certainly an intention to do that, but it, in practice it seems to be very difficult. So we're taking our study, our research, our models that we've created through the Integrated Development Initiative here at FHI 360 and now applying that into the humanitarian space. And so our program of primary health care, WASH, and nutrition are integrated both at the health facility level and in our outreach to the communities. Give our listeners some detail about what a WASH activity looks like or what a primary health care activity looks like and how those integrate at the community level. Sure. So we'll initially start in these two facilities, which are very damaged. Health facilities. Health facilities. So they're like, are they urban-based? Mocha is a bit larger than Dubab, which is in the south, and Mm -hmm. so we'll be working in a health facility there. And Mocha will be working in an MCH center, Mm -hmm. maternal and child health center. Uh But we'll be providing larger uh, primary health care services beyond But those facilities, would they look like a small hospital? They would look like a two-story home. Okay. Uh, They're not large. They've all been emptied of all their supplies uh, and equipment, and in most cases, their staff. So first of all, we're going to start with the facilities. We're going to help to refurbish the infrastructure. 
We'll then identify staff who were former employees of the Ministry of Health, and we'll begin bringing them back into the health centers. We'll begin doing some retraining. We'll provide incentives because for the most part, most public service workers have not received a salary over the last two years. And so that's teachers and doctors and nurses and laboratory technicians, Mm -hmm. but also, which is really encouraging, and I think a real statement to the strength of the Yemenis, many of them actually continue to show up and provide services uh, out of sort of true dedication to the profession and to the people in which they're meant to serve. We'll actually be providing them now some incentives um, mm-hmm. that will allow them to, to have some economic power. Right, uh, just be some able income. To, some income. And then we'll begin retraining and providing supervision to the staff. The services we'll look at, we'll, we'll provide, again, essential primary health care services, so both for infectious diseases, non-infectious diseases. We'll be doing surveillance. We'll be spotting if there's cholera or diphtheria. Uh, measles or malaria. Has uh, cholera been a, an issue in Yemen? There are now over one million suspected cases of cholera, which is the so largest number sh- anywhere in the world. Yeah, so it's a huge issue. It is one, in fact, we're bracing for what is being uh, referred to as the third wave of cholera. It normally comes in the rainy season. You know, cholera is contracted by usually dirty water right. uh, or through food. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, where there is very little clean drinking water, very little hygiene facilities or sanitation facilities, easy to spread that. The rainy season is starting now, and that's when traditionally the outbreak of cholera takes place. I see. And so to address an outbreak like that, would organizations like ours preposition oral rehydration packets and other supplies to treat cholera? We will, and so we're trying to get out in front of it. So in addition to the health centers that we're working in, we will be working with community health volunteers to be doing outreach to the communities. Some of them are two and three hours away, and Mm -hmm. oftentimes people don't have the ability to access the centers, primarily because they don't have any money, so they can't afford to take a bus. So buses are still running? Buses are still running, miraculously so, and or private cars. Uh-huh. So we want to make sure that we're outreaching what we call the third ring of a health center. And so our community health volunteers will be doing surveillance. They'll be doing hygiene education, hygiene promotion. And those community health volunteers, are those volunteers that were previously employed as community health workers that are being brought back into the system or are they new people that are being trained? Primarily it'll be those who have been working as community health volunteers in the past. Uh, We recognize because of displacement or death we'll need to bring in some new community health volunteers but probably three-quarters of the health volunteers are already present. Okay. And again they'll be doing a lot of advanced work, they'll be doing surveillance but they'll also be doing just some real basic treatment especially focusing on women and children, especially Mm -hmm. pregnant and lactating women. Mm -hmm. Children, you know, again, trying to capture that golden thousand days uh, when it's super important for children to have the micronutrients and nutrients that are necessary for their uh, brain to grow. To avoid stunting stunting. chronic malnutrition. Stunting rate right now in in Yemen is 47%. Wow. Breastfeeding, exclusive breastfeeding is below 10%. Why is that? Primarily because women don't have access to healthy foods, and so they're not able to produce lactate, produce milk, Uh exactly. And so we'll be working with pregnant and lactating women to encourage breastfeeding, especially for the first six months, if we can, for two years. And as you know, when a child doesn't get those nutrients, then it affects their brains. 
which then affects their ability to learn, which then affects their ability to earn an income. So it's right. so important to be addressing the kids at that very early right. stage. For long-term productivity exactly. and just for people to have the opportunities to live fulfilling lives. Exactly. And so when it comes to calorie, we'll also be prepositioning non-food items. And these are hygiene kits. There's soap and there's buckets and jerry cans. There's cooking kits. There's sanitary napkins. In some cases, there's food for one month providing more healthy food to kids. You say more healthy food, like sorghum or... That's right, and vegetables, and there are fortified milks that can be but provided. But almost all of that, or maybe all of that, has to be imported, correct? So 90% of food staples are imported to Yemen. Even before the conflict. Even before the conflict. Interestingly enough, over 60% of water goes to agricultural production of small farms, which only contribute to 6% of the GDP. Wow. A lot of the issue has been, again, from the past, and a lot of farmers have decided to switch from producing grains and vegetables to producing cot, mm-hmm. which is a plant that's a mild stimulant that pretty much every man and woman partakes in. in, in women also chew women cot? Also. You chew it, right? That's right. You chew that. Is uh, it, does it taste good? It's very chewy. <laughs> it's just like you know throwing a plant in your cheek leaves that's leaves exactly and you'll see people you'll see gunmen at the checkpoints with a gigantic wad of it in their cheek so that's the main cash crop in it's the, the main cash now. crop and it's also a huge uh, it sucks up a lot of water it's one of the dire needs frankly of yemen we have a dropping water table uh, and the water table comes from lack of strong uh, water resource management. It comes from uh, illegal tapping of uh, wells, and it comes from global climate change, that there is just less water. Is it possible to distinguish or differentiate root causes of the conflict and whether climate change is one of those root causes? Well, we're certainly seeing uh, weather changes. We're seeing less rain. Uh, Mm -hmm. in Yemen over the last 10 years. Currently, I think only 25 to 30% of citizens are connected up by pipe to clean drinking water. Many of them have to walk a half hour, an hour, two hours to get to some source of clean drinking water. That's always been a a problem for a long time in, Mm -hmm. in Yemen. And now with the climate change, you're seeing the lack of rainwater and you're seeing the lack of ability to grow uh, nutritious foods like vegetables or, or some of the basic grains that people... So you've talked about water and sanitation. Yeah. And the lack of water or water shortages are an uh, underlying challenge that yeah. the country faces. That that's linked to food security because one, you're not able to produce much food, 90% of the food is imported, and then now farmers have switched to growing cot, which is a cash crop. So wash, food security, and then primary health care. That's correct. And then that links in with the spread of infectious diseases like cholera. And back to cholera, you know, it's really one of the most curable infectious diseases out there. Um, People can die within hours from diarrhea or from vomiting Mm -hmm. by giving them rehydration fluids or by giving them IV drips. At times when it's severe cholera antibiotics, and they will be cured within a day or two. It's easily solved infectious disease. Right. What about diphtheria? You mentioned that as another... Yeah. 
Diphtheria is, is on, on the rise. Uh, in fact, that was one of the first projects that we engaged on. So we worked closely with the Ministry of Health and with the WHO, and we were doing a series of trainings of health surveillance staff, both on the WH side and Ministry of Health. There, it's, a respiratory spread, it's a respiratory disease, disease right? right? And so it uh, adversely affects the nervous system, which then can shut down the heart and the lungs, or people can suffer because of lack of fluid and they build up of mucus in their throat and they can die of, of, um, suffocation. of suffocation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Currently, I think there's about 1,900 cases of diphtheria and it continues to rise. And so on top of the cholera and endemic uh, malaria, dengue fever, uh, we have measles, diphtheria, and cholera now that are an outbreak. Wow. It's almost like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right, it? right. And to make it even worse, as I mentioned earlier, the combatants are weaponizing the economy, weaponizing food. The coalition has a, a stranglehold on the main port, which is Hodaida. Mm-hmm. There's a big battle going on. For it, they are poised for a big battle. The international community is very, very nervous that if there's a battle for Hodaida, it will cut off that food line. Is uh, the food coming in through Hodaida now? Primarily. You what have, about Aden? So Aden doesn't have the large facilities that Hodaida does. It does have some offloading capacity, but having gone through them myself a couple of times, you can see it, it doesn't have the number of large cranes that Hodaida has. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the storage facilities that it has. It doesn't have the customs uh, infrastructure that Hodaida has. So if the... Uh Different parties to the conflict are using starvation as a tactic to uh, overcome their adversaries. Why do they allow humanitarian actors in at all? I think it's just there's no unified power, to be honest. It's so dispersed throughout the country. I also think that people don't want to have vast amounts of people suffering and dying on their watch, whether it's the Emiratis or the Saudis or the Houthis or, or the Hadi government. So we've been allowed to operate. It's not easy uh, getting access to places like Taiz, getting access to places like Lahej and, and, and Ib are extremely difficult. And it's also extremely difficult to work in the north. Do they receive much humanitarian aid? They do. There, there is. It just, it's, and in fact, I would say the bulk of humanitarian actors are in the north, and only oh, over right? the last six months have begun building up their capacity in the south because more and more people are now moving from the north into the south as internally displaced persons. In previous podcasts, a number of my guests have noted that the nature of humanitarian crisis has changed over the last 10 or so years and that now crises are protracted and that they go on for an average of 17 years is one number that is frequently quoted but I've heard recently that it's that number has gone up and it's even higher than that. Uh, Looking at the situation in Yemen and the, the confused conflict that's going on what prospects are there for achieving some level of stability so that people can go back to their communities, communities can reestablish themselves, and you can get some sort of normal life going again? So I would say uh, hope is in limited supply in Yemen. We cannot humanitarian our way out of this. This has to be the combatants coming to the peace table and negotiating some equitable peace for all the parties that are involved in this. 
at this point in time, I think most people who are looking to the future would say that the prospects for that are limited. There seems to be very little incentive on the part of the primary combatants to go to the peace table. I think the coalition sees there's an opportunity to weaken the Houthis uh, by taking Hodeida. Uh-huh. Uh, and then perhaps they could get them to the to the peace table. But I think others believe that that's a fallacy, that the Houthis will continue to fight for their position, no matter if they have Hodeida or not. So really it comes down to uh, peace negotiations, Patrick. Again, uh, we can try as humanitarian actors to service some of the most immediate needs, but we have an entire generation of kids that have been adversely affected by this conflict, uh, whether it's through malnutrition or lack of education, or lack of economic opportunities. With the underlying issues that we talked about earlier that, that precede this particular conflict of uh, lack of agricultural inputs and outputs, mm-hmm. uh, with a declining value to the currency, with rapid inflation, and with a, a rapidly decreasing water table. Not to sound completely pessimistic, but I think at this point in time, it's a struggle to think about what the future will look like for Yemen especially in absence of some of peace accords. So realistically, the international community can expect to be assisting the people of Yemen for some time to come. I would think so. And unfortunately, it seems that Yemen has fallen off of the front page or even the fifth page uh, of our newspapers. While it's the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, it seems to have been largely forgotten uh, by the international community. Are there any factors that do give you hope? So, like in so many of these humanitarian situations, my hope oftentimes resides in the resiliency of the people, and especially during my times in Yemen, I saw that in the Yemenis. They are incredibly strong. Uh, They are incredibly resourceful. When I go work with the staff in the Ministry of Health, they're also uh, positive and leaning into the problem. The Ministry of Water, the same. But I am worried that that resiliency and elasticity is continuing to be worn down uh, as we enter into the fourth year. What also gives me hope is that, is that we've built this really amazing team. We have uh, members of our crisis response team at FHI 360 and our Yemeni staff that we're continuing to build and grow. They are also impressive in the sense of let's get it done. We can do some really important work. And so I've been very impressed by that. And that gives me hope at the end of the day. Well, hopefully this in-depth conversation about the conditions that you've encountered in Yemen and the actions that you're leading to assist people who are caught up in this conflict uh, will draw attention to what's happening there. Um, Greg, I want to thank you for really taking a deeper look into what it takes to respond in conflict setting uh, where the conditions are ones that make operating extremely difficult, um, but where the needs are so urgent that uh, something must be done. So this was a, a really valuable perspective that you shared with our listeners today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's good to join you and your listeners today. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Join us again next month for another episode of A Deeper Look. While you're waiting for the next episode, send in your comments and questions and leave a review of the podcast. You can also share today's episode on social media using hashtag A Deeper Look and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and go back and listen to past episodes as well. Uh, once again, Greg, thanks so much for sharing your perspective today. Thank you, Patrick.